From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Monday, September 25th, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, ethnic Armenians are leaving the Nagorno-Karabakh region as Armenia and Azerbaijan arrange a peace meeting in Spain. Morocco is planning to spend 11 billion U.S. dollars on earthquake reconstruction over the next five years. And the first Chinese tourists to benefit from a temporary visa-free policy have arrived in Thailand. In business, China's lower rates for first-time homebuyers take effect. In sports, China's off to a roaring start at the Hangzhou Asian Games. And in culture and entertainment, the 10th Silk Road International Film Festival in Fujian Province. Now checking the day's top stories. The Armenian Security Council says leaders from Armenia and Azerbaijan will meet in Spain next month to discuss a peace treaty regarding Nagorno-Karabakh. A mass exodus is underway involving 120,000 ethnic Armenians who are leaving the region. Uh, many of them are driving towards Armenia via the, via the Lachin Corridor. Uh, this came as Azerbaijani forces heightened their control over the mountainous area, seizing weapons from Armenian separatist fighters in what they're calling anti-terrorist operations. Charlotte Parsons has more. Homeless, hungry, and facing an uncertain future, these ethnic Armenians were evacuated by Russian peacekeepers after Azerbaijan launched what it called an anti-terrorist operation in Nagorno-Karabakh. Azeris entered the village in the morning. People left as they could. Someone even left without any clothes. They couldn't take anything. There are people who haven't eaten anything. My grandchildren are with me. They're frightened and shaking with fear. They cannot sleep at night. Russian peacekeepers are here. We think it will be safe. So we stay at the airport, although we sleep 12 people in a car. On Sunday, the leader of the breakaway region said all 120,000 ethnic Armenians in the region will leave for Armenia because they're scared of what will happen if they stay. Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh continue to face the threat of ethnic cleansing. In recent days, humanitarian aid has arrived, but this does not change the situation. And unless real living conditions are created for the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh in their homes and effective mechanisms of protection from ethnic cleansing, then the likelihood that the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh will see exile from their homeland as the only way to preserve their lives and identity will increase. The mountainous region is internationally recognized as Azerbaijani territory. But part of it has been run by separatist Armenian authorities since a war that ended in the early 90s. That changed on Tuesday, when Azerbaijan's military launched a lightning strike in the disputed region, killing hundreds of people. Thousands have been left without food or shelter. 
A small amount of aid has arrived, but it's nowhere near enough. And the people here are afraid to go home, despite promises from Azerbaijan to respect their rights. It's a historic opportunity for both Azerbaijan and Armenia to establish good neighborly relations and coexist side by side in peace as two sovereign states within their internationally recognized borders. Armenia's Prime Minister says everyone who wants to leave will be escorted to Armenia by Russian peacekeepers. Meanwhile, displaced Armenians can only wait and hope. And that was Charlotte Parsons on the tensions in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. France is set to end its military presence in Niger and pull its ambassador out of the country. This comes following a military coup in Niger that deposed the democratically elected president. French President Emmanuel Macron says around 1,500 French soldiers deployed in Niger will return by the end of the year. France has decided to bring back its ambassador and the coming hours of our ambassador and several diplomats will return to France and will put an end to our military cooperation with the current Niger authorities because they don't want to fight against terrorism anymore. The military junta in Niger has demanded the departure of the French ambassador after the coup, but France refused initially. The junta then ordered the expulsion of the French ambassador. French troops pulled out of neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso in recent years after coups in those countries. Mali's foreign minister has called on a UN peacekeeping mission in his country to leave. Abdullah Diop made the remarks when addressing the UN General Assembly in New York. La mission des Nations Unies au Mali, MINUSMA. The United Nations mission in Mali has not been able to help Mali re-establish its authority over its territory, despite the considerable investments over the last 10 years during its presence on national territory. The security situation has unfortunately only deteriorated further. The insecurity, which was contained in northern areas of Mali at the time of the deployment of the United Nations mission in 2013, has now reached the center and the south. Attacks in the countries north have more than doubled since UN peacekeepers completed the first phase of their withdrawal last month, resulting in more than 150 deaths. Mali has averaged four violent attacks daily so far this year, a 15% increase compared to the same period last year. Thousands of people have gathered on the streets in Madrid to protest a potential amnesty law for exiled Catalan leaders who had sought independence. Spanish acting Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez will likely have to grant their return if he wants to secure another four-year mandate. Ken Brown explains. Six years ago, an illegal independence referendum saw some Catalan leaders flee the country. Carles Puigdemont, the most prominent. Now, over two months since Spain's July general elections, the country still doesn't have a government, and forming one could hang on this one decision. This protest is also a rallying cry ahead an attempt by Conservative leader Alberto Núñez Feijó to become Spain's new Prime Minister. The problem is that his People's Party didn't win enough seats in Congress despite their uneasy alliance with far-right party Vox. It's falso. Rotundamente falso. It's false, completely false, that Catalan independence should be decisive in Spain's governance. For decades, it's never had fewer votes than now. It's another socialist fallacy. Acting Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez has the only realistic chance of winning a new mandate with a broad leftist coalition, but he needs the support of the hardline Catalan Junts party. The price is the pardon of its leader Puigdemont and his colleagues. I've seen some of the things that have been said, not just by the opposition, but also in the conservative media. And we've had five years of apocalyptic prophecies that have never come to pass. Sanchez's opponents say he is negotiating with fugitives and traitors. We have a madman in power right now. He's neurotic and narcissistic. Look up the definition in any psychology book and see how it matches his behavior. He lies and manipulates the public. Puigdemont has to face the law. That's what justice is about, to be responsible for his actions. Like any other citizen, we're all accountable for our own actions. Catalan independence remains the most divisive issue in Spanish politics, and the government has defended its conciliatory approach. They have already pardoned nine Catalan separatists. And that was Ken Brown reporting from Madrid. U.S. Republican lawmakers are trying to pass legislation aimed at avoiding a government shutdown in less than a week. But a small section of their hardline conservative colleagues are opposing them, demanding that they limit spending to lower debt. Owen Fairclough explains. We're making an order consideration of four bills. 
working through the weekend to try to pull the US government back from the precipice. Republicans who control the House of Representatives racing against time to try to introduce legislation aimed at keeping critical government agencies funded as a shutdown looms. Kevin McCarthy, the leading Republican in Congress, is under pressure to stop a shutdown by getting rebellious hardline Republicans determined to cut spending on side. We continue to talk. Look, I thought we had a really good conference the night before. I thought we had moved two people, but we moved two people the other way too. So it's a, it's a yin and a yang. And it's deja vu. The same Republican divisions led to the U.S. almost defaulting on its debts in June before Congress voted to raise spending limits and keep the government running through the summer. President Biden is urging his opponents to set aside their internal divisions that have triggered previous government shutdowns. But that faction of ultra-conservative Republicans are opposing a short-term funding measure known as a continuing resolution. That just leads to more of the same. It's actually precisely the reason that we are $33 trillion in debt facing $2 trillion annual deficits. We cannot go on as a country that spending $7 trillion and bringing in $5 trillion. So I hope we could get bipartisan agreement to reduce spending. If lawmakers are unable to agree on a continuing resolution, the federal government risks shutting down at midnight on September the 30th. That was Owen Faircloth with the report on difficulties to reach an agreement to keep the U.S. government running. Coming up, Morocco announces a reconstruction plan following a deadly earthquake. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. At 10 minutes past the hour, Morocco's planning to spend at least 11 billion U.S. dollars in a post-earthquake reconstruction drive over the next five years. The government will also pay each family affected by the earthquake $240 per month for 12 months. Daniel Arapmoy has more. A 6.8 magnitude earthquake that struck Morocco early this month left more than 2,900 people dead and destroyed thousands of homes. Authorities have since been trying to mobilize resources to help rebuild the most affected parts of the country. The government's initial plan targets 4.2 million Moroccans in the worst hit provinces. It's estimated that the reconstruction and emergency assistance to families will cost the country over $700 million. The plan, to be funded by the government's budget and international aid, will also cover infrastructure upgrades, mostly in the hard-to-reach villages of the high Atlas Mountains. The quake-stricken areas are reportedly among Morocco's poorest, with many remote villages lacking proper roads and public services. According to authorities, so far 50,000 houses are known to have been damaged in the deadly earthquake. According to UNICEF, Close to 100,000 children in Morocco have been affected by the quake. That was Daniel Aratmoy in Morocco, or on Morocco, helping families affected by the deadly earthquake. The emergency committee in eastern Libya says it's confirmed more than 3,800 deaths following the flooding this month. Authorities are calling on all citizens in Derna and neighboring cities affected by the floods to report their missing relatives. Mohamed Algreth from the Emergency Crisis and Rapid Response Committee says they're still trying to establish the exact number of deaths as well as those missing. <laughs> What is being announced is only the confirmed deaths, people who have been buried by our forces. The casualties toll is still under calculation because not all burials have been registered yet. State bodies like the Interior Ministry, the Health Ministry and the Prosecutor General's Office are investigating and authenticating those which are still unregistered. Unfortunately, the numbers will keep growing. The committee we formed to evaluate the healthcare needed and the risk of endemic disease has started working on Saturday in Darna. Nine foreign rescue teams are assisting Libya in its search for the missing. Meantime, the flood-devastated port city of Derna will host an international conference next month to aid reconstruction efforts.
China's emergency humanitarian aid to flood hit Libya has arrived in the eastern city of Benghazi. The emergency supplies include tents, blankets, life vests, water purifiers, patient monitors, and ultrasound diagnostic equipment. The Red Cross Society of China has already delivered $200,000 in cash to the Libyan Red Crescent in emergency humanitarian assistance for disaster response efforts. India's Kerala state is hoping that the latest outbreak of the Nipah virus is abating after reporting zero cases in nearly a week. But the symptoms of Nipah are similar to a regular viral fever, and doctors believe it's too early to drop their guard. Radhika Bajaj has more. The coastal state of Kerala is fighting its fourth Nipah virus outbreak in five years. The virus originates in bats and is passed on to humans via saliva or urine or food items contaminated by infected animals. While not very contagious, the Nipah virus's mortality rate is among the highest for any known viral disease, making it part of WHO's list of viruses with pandemic potential. The government has ordered a surveillance survey to understand why Kerala has been repeatedly affected by Nipah. So we need to see if the uh, the prevalence of virus is more likely in certain areas or during certain seasons or certain types of bats are there other variables that uh, affect the way they shed the virus uh, or are there other uh, intermediary hosts uh, are there particular seasons where people are apparently interacting with bats a little bit more so surveillance is so important two infected persons have died in the current outbreak containment zones were created and restrictions placed since the first death on August 30th. Over 1,200 people have been tested, although the rate of positivity has been low, with a total of six infections till Friday. All the hospitals where the positive patients are being treated, they should have a medical board, and in every 12 hours they have to release, uh, they have not released, they have to give the medical report to the health department. Some restrictions were lifted in light of low infections, but doctors say the incubation period of the Nipah virus is anywhere between 4 to 15 days, and symptoms initially mimic a viral fever. As it progresses, it causes fatal respiratory and encephalitic infection in the patient. India's National Institute of Virology is in the midst of a nationwide survey and so far has found evidence of bats carrying the Nipah virus in at least nine states. Here in the state of Maharashtra, which is also on that list, the annual Ganesh festival is going on. Health authorities have sounded an alert and are also surveying patients exhibiting symptoms akin to the acute encephalitis syndrome. That was Radhika Bajaj in India. Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands has blasted Japan's discharge of nuclear-contaminated water into the ocean. Uh, Manessa Sugavare has described it to the UN General Assembly as an attack on global trust and solidarity. Mr. President, Solomon Islands stands with like-minded Pacific Islanders and is, is appalled by Japan's decision to discharge over a million tons of treated nuclear waste water into the, into the ocean. We note IAEA's assessment report is, is inconclusive and that the scientific data shared remains in, inadequate, incomplete and biased. These concerns were ignored. If this nuclear waste is safe, it should be stored in Japan. The fact that it's dumped into the ocean shows that it is not safe. Waters from the nuclear power plant that was heavily damaged in the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. The operator of the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant dumped 7,800 tons of nuclear contaminated water into the sea in the first phase of its release, which ended two weeks ago. The number two official of the COP28 climate conference says that he hopes to surprise critics with a course correction for an ever-warming world. CEO Adnan Adman says that while the agreement to rid the world of fossil fuels doesn't look likely, a phase down of their use is inevitable. The way the COP process works, and I think maybe this is part of the frustration with the COP process, is that it works by consensus. You need only one country to say no, and you don't have an agreement. So what we have to do is build momentum, build consciousness, undertake the kind of consultations we need with different parties, bring them to the same space, and try to create an agreement that is beyond where we have been in the past. 
Amin says the upcoming climate talks aim to be the most inclusive ever. Uh, Dubai will host COP28 in November. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, Chinese tourists can now visit Thailand without a travel visa. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. 19 minutes past the hour. Well, the first group of Chinese tourists has arrived in Thailand under a new visa-free policy. Thai Prime Minister Sareta Tavison welcomed the visitors at an airport near Bangkok. The visa waiver took effect on Monday, and it'll last for five months. It's an attempt by the newly formed Thai government to attract more Chinese visitors and spur spending on the tourism-reliant economy. Desita Salkal has more. It's a timely decision coinciding with holiday season in China as well as peak holiday season here in Thailand. This decision was a swift one made by Thailand's newly formed government, part of a broader strategy to boost the tourism sector and by extension the country's economy. And tourism is a logical area of focus. It's an economically vital sector accounting for almost 20% of Thailand's GDP and that was before the pandemic. Tourists from China alone made up almost a third of Thailand's total international tourist arrivals. But so far, the recovery of this key market has been slower than expected. In the first six months of this year, around 1.4 million visitors from China have arrived in Thailand. This visa-free policy for Chinese tourists is estimated to add up to 700,000 new arrivals from China. But what is clear is that the country is relying on Chinese tourists, a key and vital market to revive the country's tourism industry as well as stimulate Thailand's economy. That was Desita Salkal on Thailand welcoming more Chinese tourists. In recent years, travelers in China have been paying more attention to their accommodations when going on vacations. Uh, While some focus on planning out a detailed itinerary, others may spend more time choosing a good hotel. Uh, Many hotel brands in China, such as Autour Group, are working on strategies to cater to this group of travelers, providing a better staycation experience. Liu Jiang has more. Staycation is a portmanteau of stay and vacation, and its common definition is a period in which an individual or family stays home and participates in leisure activities. But recently, the concept of a staycation has expanded to include people who want to leave their hometown but still enjoy a home-like experience. Wu Jianfeng is the CFO of a tour group, one of China's leading hotel brands. He says the emergence of the staycation is an intuitive expression of traveler demand for accommodation. Travelers nowadays strive for unique experiences when going on a staycation. Hotels are not just a place to have a good night's sleep, but an important part of the entire trip. We believe in neighborhood service, which means we want to provide services that respect your personal space while still being timely and considerate. Our goal is to give travelers a comfortable experience. We've noticed that since the pandemic ended, the way how people spend their money has changed. People now value experiences more, have higher standards for aesthetics, and care more about the emotional value of products. The quality of a staycation pretty much hinges on the quality of the accommodations. Other than having more refined tastes, modern travelers have higher and more stringent standards for where and how they spend their time and money. A fantastic dining establishment, a luxurious spa, beautiful park grounds, and a lavish swimming pool are just a few features to look for. Wu says, besides the traditional facilities and services, a tour offers personalized products and services that allow travelers to tailor their own unique travel experiences. We always take into account what young people like and need when designing our products, offering personalized products and services. For example, our A-plus service allows users to choose personalized services like yoga mats and razors. We also have a variety of products such as pet-themed rooms to cater to the needs of young people. Staycations tend to go in and out of fashion, and they've seen a surge in popularity in 2023. A survey indicates that there's a growing demand for high-end hotels in China post-COVID-19. It says consumers appear more willing to spend extra on hotel accommodations for their trips.
Specifically, 37% of them now prefer higher start-rated hotels, up from 18% in 2020. To attract guests, hotels need to foster a sense of confidence and assure them that they will have a wonderful hospitality experience that aligns with all safety measures. For the Beijing Hour, this is Liu Jiaheng. A sample from an asteroid more than six billion kilometers away has landed on Earth. Scientists describe it as a gift to the world. NASA says it opens up a time capsule to the beginning of the solar system. Hendrik Cybrandi reports. At Lockheed Martin, the Colorado Aerospace Company, where the Osiris-Rex spacecraft was designed and built, a full range of emotions was on display as a sample return capsule landed in the Utah desert. I'm super excited. That could not have gone any better.、And、Sandy Freund, who helped run the mission, described the tense hours leading up to and then including the successful touchdown. All went exactly and, and maybe even better than we could possibly hoped. The SRC, as it's called, arrived three minutes earlier than had been predicted. Lockheed Martin delivers ahead of schedule.、Uh, <laughs> that's a head. Liftoff of Osiris Rex. Osiris Rex blasted off back in 2016, bound for Bennu, a near-Earth asteroid located many millions of kilometers from our planet. Four years later, during a delicate touch-and-go maneuver, it scooped up an estimated 250 grams of rocks and dust. Then, carrying its precious cargo, it began making its way back home. The organically rich material on board could potentially be very revealing. As a kid, even now, right, you always ask, "Where did we come from?" Right, and to be able to have scientists who may be able to answer that question. Is is almost surreal. Scientists like Dante Loretta, who was part of the team that elaborately rehearsed the retrieval of the SRC back in June, Bennu may once have seeded Earth with the prebiotic ingredients needed to form life. Which means you can extrapolate it back to the earliest history of Earth and evaluate: Is this a reasonable environment to be speculating for the origin of life on our planet? The asteroid material must be recovered and transported extremely carefully. Science really requires us to maintain the pristine state of this material from the moment we collected it on the surface of asteroid Bennu till the moment it gets into laboratories for scientific analysis. That process is now underway. Those connected with the mission at Lockheed Martin have done their part. It's the million little things that the team plans for, and that millions of hours they've spent. Preparing for this, it's amazing seeing their reaction and their pure joy to to this event. It's it's really fun to watch. The Osiris Rex spacecraft is now bound for another asteroid, having deposited its sample, which will now be sent to NASA's space center in Houston for a first look by scientists, and then a more public reveal, which is scheduled for October 11th. Congratulations. That was Hendrik Cybrandi reporting. A UN expert says governments are responsible for ensuring that private groups and individuals are not using AI in a way that violates existing human rights treaties. UN Tech Envoy Amandeep Gill says their approach is to promote artificial intelligence that works for everyone and doesn't cause harm. Essential when it comes to AI is authority,、uh, because. Uh, you may have an inclusive effort. You may have an effort that's seen as legitimate, but can it have really an impact? So, when something comes out of the UN,、uh, it can have an authoritative impact. There are certain instruments at the UN, for example, the human rights treaties, with which some of these commitments can be linked, and so that gives you a way to keep people honest about their commitments. Uh, the UN's drafting a global digital compact for emerging technologies with standards and shared practices that world leaders will discuss at the summit of the future, 2024. Well, surgeons in the U.S. state of Maryland have transplanted a pig's heart into a dying man in a bid to prolong his life. The patient's a 58-year-old Navy veteran who was facing near-certain death from heart failure. Other health problems meant that he wasn't eligible for a traditional heart transplant.、It、was only the second patient to ever undergo such an experimental feat. The same Maryland team last year performed the world's first transplant of a genetically modified pig's heart into another dying man. That patient、uh, survived just. Two months. 
28 past the hour. Beijing's down to 15 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, sunny in 26. Chongqing's at 20 this evening, then a slight rainfall in 24. Lhasa dips to 9, then cloudy in 23. Hong Kong's at 28 this evening. It'll be getting cloudy skies in 33 tomorrow. Uh, elsewhere, Tokyo 17 overnight. It's overcast in 28 degrees on Tuesday. Islamabad will be clear with 18 tonight, then sunny in 33. Bangkok's down to 25 degrees and a slight rainfall in 33 degrees on Tuesday. In Africa, Nairobi's getting a slight rain in 28. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's 13 this evening, then a slight rain in 21. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, ethnic Armenians are leaving the Nagorno-Karabakh region as Armenia and Azerbaijan arrange a peace meeting in Spain. Morocco is planning to spend 11 billion U.S. dollars on earthquake reconstruction over the next five years. And the first Chinese tourists to benefit from a temporary visa-free policy have arrived in Thailand. Shane Begum with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music Talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. An German railway company Deutsche director of the International Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你. This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, or a sophisticated learner, there is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Monday. Still to come. Uh, in business, China's lower rates for first-time home buyers. In sports, China's off to a roaring start at the Hangzhou Asian Games. In culture and entertainment, the 10th Silk Road International Film Festival in Fujian Province. To contact us, you can email audionewsroom at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio. Uh, first of all, check in the day's headline news. Here's Zhu Tianyu. Thank you, Shane. Chinese tourists can now enter Thailand visa-free for the next five months. The decision to waive visa requirements for Chinese travelers is an attempt by the new Thai government to attract more visitors to the tourism-reliant country. Thai Prime Minister Seta Tawisin says it is a top priority of the authorities to ensure that tourists in Thailand are safe. We are confident that this policy will greatly boost the economy. Besides the boosting of the economy, most importantly is the safety of tourists who come to Thailand. From the first step until the last step when they leave, they must be safe and left with a good impression of a warm welcome from everyone. China is a major source of tourists to Thailand, with almost 11 million visitors in 2019, accounting for nearly 30% of all arrivals. Azerbaijan says it is sending truckloads of humanitarian aid to Nagorno-Karabakh. Azerbaijan and Armenia have reached a ceasefire agreement in the region. Meanwhile, some residents are beginning to leave Nagorno-Karabakh and heading toward Armenia. Armenia says leaders from both countries involved in the conflict are scheduled to meet in Spain next month to discuss a peace treaty. France is set to end its military presence in Niger and pull its ambassador out of the country. It comes following a military coup in Niger that deposed its democratically elected president. French President Emmanuel Macron says the 1,500 French soldiers deployed in Niger will return by the end of the year. The military junta in Niger had demanded the departure of the French ambassador after the coup, but France refused. 
The junta then ordered the expulsion of the French ambassador. French troops pulled out of neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso in recent years after coups there. Iran says it is serious about returning to the 2015 nuclear deal should the other parties be ready. Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Abdullahian met UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and praised the top UN official for the good consultations Guterres has had with Iran regarding the revival of the nuclear deal. Guterres said he appreciated Iran's diplomatic initiatives in helping resolve problems, remove obstacles and develop relations with other countries. Over 100 Swedes have gathered in Stockholm to protest the government's decision to join NATO. The main purpose is that we want to stop the Swedish application to the, to the NATO alliance because we don't want to be a part of that. We don't want to be a part of a war criminal alliance that is terrorizing all around the world and uh, starting war in uh, different innocent countries. The protesters expressed their opposition to the government's abandonment of Sweden's long-standing neutrality in favour of NATO membership. Artists also performed songs praising Sweden's past peace and warning of the post-NATO scourge of war the public would face. The Swedish NATO accession issue has been under discussion for nearly a year. Only the Turkish and Hungarian parliaments are yet to approve Sweden's membership. Bolivia's president will have competition for his job from within his own party. Former President Evo Morales has announced his bid for 2025. Morales says he decided to run under what he calls attacks from the government. The former indigenous farmer led the South African country for almost 14 years before an election in 2019 that was marred by allegations of fraud. He then left the country claiming he was a victim of a US-backed coup. NASA's first asteroid samples fetched from deep space have parachuted into the Utah desert to cap a seven-year journey. In a flyby of Earth, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft released a sample capsule from 100,000 kilometers out. The small capsule landed four hours later on a remote expanse of military land. Director Laurie Glaze at the NASA Planetary Science Division attributes the success to good teamwork. Um, it's just been amazing. And I'll also just say what you saw executed today, that precision, everything going just almost perfectly to plan, that happens because of an incredible team, um, hundreds and hundreds of people. Scientists estimate the capsule holds at least a couple of rubble from the carbon-rich asteroid known as Bennun. The samples are likely to offer fresh insights into the formation of the solar system 4.6 billion years ago and potentially shed light on the origins of life on Earth. NASA plans a public show-and-tell in October. Thank you very much for the update. That's Jutian Liu. This is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, China lowers rates for first-time home buyers. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour brings you an hour of comprehensive news and information from both China, China, and the rest of the world. Rest of the world. A mix of news, sports, and entertainment. In-depth analysis of the day's big stories, as well as the most comprehensive business of the day. The Beijing Hour. Beijing Hour. Your very own window to China and the rest of the world. 37 past the hour now, turning to business, and Chinese markets closed lower on Monday. Timothy Pope has more. Uh, the Chinese mainland equities uh, got off to a bit of a slow start to the week, actually. Uh, the lead-up to the week-long National Day holiday usually sees investors uh, cashing in their stocks, so we usually get falls at this time of year. The uh, Shanghai Composite Index and the Shenzhen Component each ended more than half of 1% lower. Uh, Chinese chipmaker Cambricon was one of the leading decliners among tech stocks, at least, after revealing yet another major shareholder has uh, decided to cut its stake in the firm. Uh, Cambricon shares fell more than 3% after announcing that a Shanghai venture capital fund uh, had sold 1.5 billion yuan worth of stock uh, in the second quarter of the year, equal to almost 2% of its total equity. Now, this is significant because it's the fourth major VC sellout among Cambricon shareholders in the last 12 months. Uh, elsewhere, the market performance was pretty lacklustre, with uh, only healthcare stocks making much headway. There wasn't uh, enough there, though, uh, among healthcare stocks to outweigh the losses that we saw among real estate, tech, consumer, and uh, energy shares as well. 
That was market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index was down over 1.8%. In Japan, the Nikkei gained uh, nearly nine-tenths of a percent. Uh, Chinese banks are lowering the mortgage rate on existing homes for first-time buyers starting from today as a way to boost the real estate market. A policy from the central bank had asked all banks to slash rates for existing housing loans. The average adjustment of the rate is 80 basis points. For a housing loan surpassing 2 million yuan or roughly 270,000 U.S. dollars, the reduced rate will uh, save a borrower 1,000 yuan a month. The Chinese Ministry of Commerce has announced that the China-European Union High-Level Economic and Trade Dialogue is taking place in Beijing on Monday. This is the first in-person dialogue in three years. And with more, Pan Deng spoke with Zheng Biao, Associate Professor with the School of Political Science and Public Administration. Let's take a quick look at the uh, structure of China-EU side and specifically on China's exports to the European Union. The annual exports volume um, surpassed 650 billion US dollars and the five top sectors are electrical or electronic equipment, machinery, nuclear reactors, boilers, organic chemicals, non-railway vehicles and furniture, lighting and prefabricated uh, buildings. How come uh, these five sectors become a risk to the European Union, and how can uh, the European Union balance uh, that trade, if you will? Well, I, I think if you look at the data, I don't think these uh, five sectors pose um, any kind of uh, challenge or risk to the European Union at all, because the data you have uh, you have provided is based on the UN's harmonized system, and that system enables you uh, to have a closer look at the sectors by disaggregating um, the different sectors. For instance, in the sector you have mentioned organic chemical, you can uh, break that down and you can uh, look at which sector China has exported more to the European Union. And, and when I was doing my research, I found that actually, for instance, uh, a, a alcohol is one of the biggest uh, products China has been exporting to the European Union. So most of the Chinese exports to the EU concentrate on industrial materials and electric uh, equipment. So I wouldn't uh, call them risk at all. Um, but that doesn't mean that the European Union see the things in the same way because the European Union is concerned about so-called fair and free trade. They argue that the, um, China and the European Union has a kind of um, imbalanced trade. Uh, the European Union's export to China is much smaller than its import from China. Uh, and also uh, they argue that China has been subsidizing its state-owned companies. So that means China is practicing uh, unfair trade. So, um, so that these are the two European Union's concerns. That was Zheng Biao, Associate Professor with the School of Political Science and Public Administration, talking about China-EU trade and investment. Huawei's unveiled the Huawei Watch Ultimate Design, crafted masterpiece, the first high-end golden smartwatch created for elites in various fields. The golden smartwatch incorporates 18-karat gold for the first time. Uh, the watch bezel is manually inlaid with six sections of 18-karat gold. In addition, the new product also supports two-way Beidou na- satellite messaging. Exports of heavy-duty vehicles from China to Central Asian countries are surging, with the Belt and Road Initiative partnership between the two sides picking up pace. Shanxi Province is a key manufacturing base for new energy vehicles and heavy-duty trucks. Shanxi Heavy-Duty Automobile Import and Export Company has been exporting vehicles for over a decade to Kazakhstan and other regional countries under the BRI. Brand manager Hui Sheng says they have high expectations that trade will see further growth this year. 截止到今年八月呢，陕西的沙克曼重卡出口的产。As of August this year, Shackman's export of heavy-duty trucks have been greatly improved compared with previous years. We exported 20,000 trucks two years ago and 35,000 in 2022. This year so far, the number has been over 40,000. The export so far this year has increased 80% compared to the same period last year. Official figures show that trade between China and uh, five Central Asian countries reached 70 billion U.S. dollars in 2022, with truck sales playing a pivotal role in driving sales growth. 
Chinese car maker BYD has launched its compact electric car in Mexico named Dolphin. Uh, this is the company's latest offering to a market that's vital to its global sales. Alistair Baverstock spoke with industry insiders about this latest launch. BYD's Dolphin Compact Electric Car was unveiled in Mexico City this month, the Chinese auto company's latest offering to a market which has become vital to its global sales. Mexico may lag behind more developed countries when it comes to the switch to electric mobility, but the world's top-selling EV brand is speeding up that process. BYD has become the world's largest electric vehicle company, and then in 2022, we deliver 1.86 billion electric cars to the market. BYD Motors has been operating in Mexico's car market for 10 years, and guests at the launch event for their latest model are keen for more. This brand has arrived very strongly in Mexico's market, with electric vehicles that are financially accessible. Electric mobility is clearly the future, and we have to start adapting to it. The BYD Dolphin was launched in Mexico at a starting price of about $31,250, less than half of what an equivalent Tesla model costs here. Indeed, BYD is hot on Tesla's tail. CEO Elon Musk announced the building of his mega factory in Monterrey in early 2023, and BYD has plans for a local manufacturing operation here too. Yeah, we do have plans. Mexico is always the largest auto manufacturer in the whole American region. Now we're spending a lot of uh, like a team to do a lot of detailed study analysis. So when the time is more mature, BYD also can consider to produce the vehicle here. As Chinese EV technology becomes an increasingly common sight on Mexico's roads, both the environment and the economy are set to benefit. That was Alistair Baverstock reporting. The 6th China Arab States Expo has witnessed the signing of over 400 agreements on China Arab cooperation involving investment of over 170 billion yuan or roughly 23 billion US dollars. The agreements cover multiple fields such as economy and trade, agriculture, energy, sci-tech and tourism. Xu Xiaoping is the office director of the executive committee of this year's expo. 220 more than 220 enterprises from foreign chambers of commerce and associations and over 100 large domestic enterprises participated in the expo and forums. The number of people from domestic and foreign business communities and enterprises account for more than 80 percent, fully demonstrating the popularity, reputation, great attraction and influence of the China Arab States Expo as a platform for economic and trade cooperation. With the exhibition area covering nearly 40,000 square meters, this year's expo set up four pavilions for participants from 65 countries. Sri Lankan state media reported that the governmental uh, proposed special tax breaks and concessions in the 2024 budget to attract large-scale foreign direct investors in information technology and vehicle assembly. The investment promotion minister was quoted as saying that the government will introduce a strategic tax policy, including tax breaks, for a period of two to five years for investors in the IT sector. The minister says despite the economic crisis, the Board of Investment was able to attract foreign direct investment to nearly one or of nearly 1.8 billion dollars in 2022 exceeding the targeted amount of 1 billion dollars uh, you're listening to the beijing hour and coming up in sports china's off to a roaring start at the hangzhou asian games sideline story brings you all things sports related the hottest topics latest events juiciest stories all with a very personal take Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. At 47 past the hour now, turning to sports, so we begin with the Hangzhou Asian Games. Greet Asia in Hangzhou. Embrace the excitement of the Games. China got off to a flying start on the first official day of competition on Sunday, claiming 20 out of 31 gold medals. Uh, Zhou Jiaqi and Cho Xiaoping secured the first gold of the Games in the women's lightweight double skulls. Uh, Chinese rowers continued to dominate the sport, pocketing another five golds. In the pool, China swept all seven gold medals available. Wang Xun set a new Asian record in the men's 200-meter individual medley. 
I think today's result is a really good one. I actually didn't expect that I could do it. I aimed for a time within one minute and 56 seconds, but I finished at just over 54 seconds, and it bettered my own Asian record. Pan Jianla set a new Asian record in the men's 100-meter freestyle. Chinese wushu athletes also dominated uh, the day's events, with Sun Peiyuan and Tongxin securing gold. Meantime, Chinese shooters secured two gold medals and one silver. In tennis, Zheng Qinwen and uh, Zhu Lin both eased into the second round in the women's singles. Uh, Brandon Yates spoke with Zheng Qinwen after her game. Congratulations on an unbelievable first performance. How do you feel after the match? Well, feels nice, you know, because in, when I play here, the opponent gave me a lot of time for playing my game, so I can feel I'm, I feel really comfortable on court. Yeah. Are there any elements of your game you'd like to work on before your next match? Oh uh, yes, maybe I would like to say when I have short ball approach more to the net and uh, more aggressive in the second yeah. serve return, and still I need to got maybe more fluent in the serve. I guess you had one or two nervous moments in the second set. Was that because you were playing in front of your home crowd or was it just first match jitters? Uh, no, it was fine. I mean, even I lost that game, nothing happened because, I mean, 6-0-6-1 or 6-0-6-0 makes no difference for me. Even 6-2-6-2 is fine. i just trying to play good in every single point. So there's no really, like, nervous, nervous moment. That's good to hear. And overall, have you been enjoying the Asian game so far? Yeah, I've been enjoying a lot, especially play in my in China for the first time finally after a long time. That was Brendan Yates reporting. In men's singles, Zhang Zhijian outperformed his opponent in straight sets despite falling behind 3-love in the first set. Zhang reflected on his performance and it said it was a, a tough beginning. Beginning always tough, and especially also his first match in the Asian game, you know, uh, I mean first match in the singles, so uh, it's tough. So it's better to get through the match and then just be like, uh, just be a bit patient and then after for sure we come the good result, it will come. Still far away to go and especially I have a singles doubles mix, it, it is tough, so uh, let's see, let's see. And with more from the games, we're now joined by Yang Guang in Hangzhou. Uh, good evening. And uh, first up, uh, some Chinese tennis stars uh, got their Asian Games uh, campaigns underway on Monday. So how did they look? Uh, yes, pretty solid performances from the Chinese players. Uh, women's boss number 22, Zheng Qingwen, totally shut out a Mongolian player, not giving away a single game throughout the straight set victory in the opening round. Uh, well, her forehand strokes were, as always, powerful and accurate, too much to handle for the Mongolian opponent. Well, for the men's side, um, uh, Zhang Zhijian struggled a little bit in his very first set of Asian Games, but um, still managed to beat a Saudi player to reach the second round. His first set was a bit shaky. Looks like um, he didn't think his opponent would cause much of a trouble. Zhang even had a brief heated discussion with his coach on the sideline of the court, but um, in the second set, he managed to recollect form, felt more comfortable, and ended up a straight set win. After the match, we had this uh, chance to speak with him, and uh, he attributed the win to the home crowd he played in front of today. Uh, he said the spectators in Hangzhou played a big part um, in encouraging him to find his own rhythm, and he said he was super happy to have the home, uh, home crowd support. Uh, and the Hangzhou native Wu Yibin also went through a similar course, I, I would say, for his first round match, struggling a little bit in the first set against an Indonesian player, but comfortably took the second set to finish the match. So overall, it was a very nice start for the Chinese tennis aces, despite one or two hiccups. Shane? Uh, what are the main highlights that have caught your attention uh, since the game's open? Well, the main highlights people are still talking about um, is the opening ceremony, especially how the cauldron was lit by both an athlete, Chinese swimmer Wang Xun, and a digital figure representing all those participating online. Uh, we talked with some athletes and the journalists as well, and uh, they loved this idea. It's definitely an example of how organizers of the Asian Games try to host an environmentally friendly event with uh, digital efforts. And uh, in terms of the sports action so far, um, there were plenty of highlights in swimming on Sunday, as um, you mentioned. Team China dominated across different events, claiming all gold medals on offer in the pool on Sunday, including one Asian record created. And there were also some lowlights, I would say, in table tennis for Team Japan, as they were 
knocked out by Team Iran in the men's team competition. It was definitely the biggest upset so far at games as Japan was quite uh, Japan is a quite a power in table tennis. Another big upset was in tennis. The highlight, uh, the highest ranked South Korean men's player Kwon Sun Woo was beaten by a Thai player on Monday. Kwon kept smashing his racket after the match. Obviously, was super frustrated with that loss. Uh, and uh, yeah, I believe as the games progress, we will see more interesting moments across different sports. Right, thank you very much. That was Yang Guang live in Hangzhou. And uh, coming up, we have Co- uh, Culture and Entertainment, the 10th Silk Road International Film Festival in Fujian Province. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men Days of Future Past. You are listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi everyone, I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. 54 past the hour, turning to culture and entertainment. Uh, preparations are underway for the opening ceremony of the 10th Silk Road International Film Festival in Fuzhou, Fujian Province. Director Lin Zhenyu uh, says the ceremony will stage many traditional elements of the Silk Road. The stage is a classic Asian city gate in China. Sometimes we feel that the stage has more elements of land-based Silk Road, but we are at the seaside. We want to combine them together. We used a large amount of water and installed more than 2,000 square meters of flooring. The length of the stage reaches 80 meters allowing the stage to show that the land and sea are closely connected. The annual Golden Silk Road Award has received um, applications from about 500 films from 51 countries and regions to compete for 10 awards in total, such as Best Film, Best Director, and Best Documentary. Well, Hangzhou is well known for many things that firmly put it on travelers' maps. The city's silk is synonymous with quality. Uh, Zhao Yang has more. Most of the world's silk comes from China, and much of China's silk comes from Hangzhou. Silk is so deeply woven into Chinese literature, art, and culture. It is the very metaphor and imagery for beauty and opulence, and it was once the preserve of the nobility and rich. There's evidence that Hangzhou has been producing silk for thousands of years. An archaeological dig uncovered silk textiles from a civilization that's 4,700 years old, it was in the last 300 years, though, that it laid claim to the label hometown of silk. Li Jianhua has researched and been in the silk trade for more than 40 years. Hangzhou truly became the heartland for silk back in the Song Dynasty. China has long led the world in silk technology, production and quality. But after the Second Industrial Revolution, we started to fall behind the West. Now. In this digital age, the silk industry is also transforming. We have adopted digital technologies in our production and design, and that has put us once again as the global frontrunner. Hangzhou has largely moved away from the primary stages of silk farming and textiles production. Its rise to the high-end market comes down to the technology and innovation that seal its reputation for quality. What better souvenir to take home from the Asian Games than a customized silk scarf? So I tell this AI silk printing designer what I want. I choose a theme, whether it's the games or whether it's the city, and add some personalized element like a message. Three minutes, that's all it takes to print this. And then treat the fabric, set the color, and hem the edges by hand. And in just one hour's time, and here we go, the finished product. And you know it uses a waterless printing method, which means a reduced environmental footprint, so very in keeping with the times. That was Zhao Yang reporting. Well, Chinese authorities have included two more items on the list of national intangible cultural heritage. Uh, they are the Hong Kong Chongsam making technique and the Tin Hao Festival. Uh, Wu Kuo is one of the inheritors of uh, Hong Kong Chongsam making technique. 
We are honored to receive the plague of national intangible cultural heritage. It's a great recognition for us. More and more young people in Hong Kong are paying attention to the protection of intangible cultural heritage and are becoming increasingly interested in this clothing. Being certified by the country makes us feel a stronger sense of responsibility to work with citizens to protect the techniques listed as national intangible cultural heritages. The Tinhao Festival in Hong Kong, an important part of the Mazu belief and customs, falls on the 23rd day of the third month on the lunar calendar. We're at 58 minutes past the hour. Uh, Beijing's down to 15 degrees overnight. Tomorrow's sunny and 26 Celsius. Uh, Chongqing's at 20 this evening, then a slight rainfall in 24. Last is down to 9, then clouds in 23. Hong Kong's 28 this evening. It's cloudy in 33 tomorrow. Elsewhere, Tokyo's 17 overnight. It's overcast in 28 degrees on Tuesday. Islamabad will be clear in 18 this evening, then sunny in 33. Uh, Bangkok's at 25 overnight, then a slight rainfall in 33 degrees on Tuesday. In Africa, Nairobi's getting a slight rain and 28 degrees. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 13 this evening. Tomorrow, a slight rain and 21. Auckland's 13 this evening, then some rain and 17. Uh, Port Vila, some rainfall and 27 Celsius. That's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, ethnic Armenians are leaving the Nagorno-Karabakh region as Armenia and Azerbaijan arrange a peace summit in uh, Spain. Morocco is planning to spend billions on earthquake reconstruction. On behalf of the staff, Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together.